Tonight's reading is Genesis chapter 38. Before I read, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in the Bible. Thank you that you have indeed given us the words of eternal life. And Father, we know that without your Spirit's help, we won't understand them, and we certainly won't put them into practice. And so we pray that he would be at work in us, changing us to be more like the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilt his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalar grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to her name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shalah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at her name? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. 
After all, I did send this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was given the name Zerah. This is God's word. I'll bet that wasn't in your uh, children's Bible when you read it. (laughs) 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. (laughs) You're joking. (laughs) Uh, What are you supposed to make of a chapter like that? It's depraved. It's confusing. It's ugly, and in places, it is just weird. But as filthy and dark as that chapter undoubtedly is, we'll find that there is grace in the grime, and that the message of the bright light of the gospel shines so beautifully in a dark passage like this. We'll actually find this is a passage of encouragement and joy to all who are sinners. And the basic message of this 18-rated story is that sin ruins, but God redeems. Sin ruins, but God redeems. And we all need to, to learn these two lessons. We all need to be reminded of or taught that sin is not fun. Sin is awful and ugly. Stay away from it, it ruins. But that God has an unmatched unparalleled, unstoppable power to redeem even the worst of messes. It's a lesson all sinners need to hear. Uh, If you're not a sinner, it's not for you. Only one man in history could stick up his hand at that point. I don't see him sitting here physically tonight, so all of us need to hear the message of this chapter. We have already prayed, so uh, we'll get straight into it. You'll find there's an outline um, on the back of the sheets if you want to to take notes. But let's dive in at verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. Which is just a great bit of storytelling. The end of chapter 37 finishes on this classic cliffhanger. Verse 36 above. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We spent all last week looking at the fate of Joseph. He is the, the main man in this whole story, in these, in these chapters, and nothing. We'll have to wait a whole chapter before we get back into the story of Joseph. And there's a reason for that. The, the narrator wants us to see how Joseph copes with temptation in slavery by showing us how his older brother Judah copes 
with temptation in freedom. We're only ready to hear the message of 39 when we've read the message of chapter 38. Let's look then at these verses. Verse 2. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. We'll ignore the jokes. Actually, it means evil backwards. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. So Judah is up in Canaan in the hills and he descends geographically down into the plains, but he's descending spiritually as well. See, he hasn't just moved town. It says in verse 2, he left his brothers. He has left the family of Jacob and joined in with the other tribes who live all around him. And we get a real insight into his character in verse 2. Literally, it reads, he saw, he took. He saw, he took. He's a man of appetite. And in this chapter, he wants sex and he wants sons. And women are great because he can use them to get what he wants. That is Judah in this chapter. But there is more going on here than just the story of boy meets girl. You see, as we saw last week, Judah is from the family of promise. God has made a a solemn covenant, a solemn oath with this family that the serpent crusher, the one who would reverse the effects of sin and evil and death, would be born to this family and that this family needs to live following the promises of God. They need to be different from the world so that they can be used to save the world. So when Abraham grows old, he is very careful to ensure that his son Isaac doesn't get a wife from the surrounding tribes, but one from his own people. Now that is not racism. God is not racist. God made all people of all nations and God loves the diversity of our world. It's his idea. The point is this. When the people of Israel married the nations around them, they became just like those nations. They stopped being different. They stopped being the distinct children, the holders of the promise. They stopped passing God's promises down from person to person. And instead, they just became like everybody else. They compromised. They turned away from the God of the Bible. Which made them useless to the world. If you like, a a doctor in a town full of plague victims needs to keep himself separate so that he can serve people. If he becomes just like the other plague victims infected with the plague, well, he's a fat lot of use to anyone. And the descendants of Abraham, Jacob's family, need to keep themselves separate so that they can serve the world and its people. They need to stay separate so that they can be the family of promise to whom the serpent crusher will be born. You see, people often think that when the Bible says Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians, it is because uh, either the Bible's just weird or because, well, Christians think they're better than everybody. You know, non-Christians just aren't good enough for them. But that is not true at all. The main reason that uh, the Bible would say Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians is because at the heart of marriage is compromise. You cannot, people who've just got engaged this week, you cannot get married without compromising. (laughs) Learn that lesson early and learn it well. And the thing is, you will always compromise. You have to. 
when there's two of you living together. But you cannot compromise on God. Because when you do, when you make those inevitable compromises, what you teach the other person is that the God of the Bible is just like, well, you know, golf at the weekend. Or how much you spend on holidays. How often you see each other's families. Just another of those things in marriage which, you know, you work out with a bit of give and take and compromise. In other words, you make it much harder for them to understand the glorious truth of the Bible. (laughs) This is not just some uh, personal idea, some personal God. This is the great, glorious creator of all people and the only saviour through his son Jesus Christ. So when the Bible says, don't marry people who don't follow Jesus if you're a Christian, it's not pride, it is love that drives it. And when God tells this family, the family of Jacob, to to stay separate from the people around, it's not because God couldn't care about the rest of the world. It's so that they can be the family that preserves God's promises which will save the whole world. It's the very opposite of racism. But when Judah leaves this family, he is turning his back on his calling and he brings all manner of mess. As he sinfully rejects God's ways, He brings disaster on himself and on others. And we all always see this. Sin brings pain, misery, and mess. So his firstborn is called Ur, which is evil backwards in Hebrew. We're not told um, exactly what it is that he does, verse 7. But he's wicked enough that God just puts him to death. So Judah calls on the second son to fulfill his duties to his dead brother. And showing the family line, we continue, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife, fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death too. I have never seen those verses put on a Christian fridge magnet. Funnily enough, Uh, The philosopher Lessing talks about a ditch you have to jump to to enter the world of any um, other people group or any other nation. There is a a grand canyon between us in 21st century London and what's going on here. So what is happening? Well, firstly, more generally, the Bible um, would warn us that what Onan is doing here is he's using sex to satisfy his own needs. But like every other man in the story, he uses Tamar but does not serve her. She's used by all the men in this chapter. And there is a warning for all of us that God's intended pattern for sex is husband and wife serving each other, not me serving myself. That is never the purpose of sex. But the bigger, the much more serious issue that's going on here that provokes God's anger is that Onan has an important duty. The people of of Jacob, the people of Abraham, are to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and they are to, to spread and grow as they pass down God's promise, as they grow and spread and fill the earth to to become God's promised people. But Onan doesn't care about that. Onan is ignoring a very important calling. He is turning his back on the needs of the whole world. He's turning his back on his role as part of the family of promise. And he's just serving himself. Things go from bad to even worse in verse 11, which is just awful on on any number of levels. Uh, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. 
So Tamar went to live in her father's household. First, uh, Judah, so hot on Onan doing his duty for his older brother. And yet we read verse 14, he has no intention of fulfilling his duties. And instead of looking after his daughter-in-law, he said, I'll tell you what, if you're not providing me with many grandkids, you can boot yourself back off and your father can deal with you. So much for looking after his daughter-in-law. And he is lying. Verse 14 makes that very clear. He has no intention whatsoever of doing what custom required and giving his third son to her when he is old enough. And the reason that he won't do that is because he's an idiot. He is a complete superstitious idiot. It's obvious from the text. Why do I say that? Because he thinks Tamar is the problem. You can see his thinking. Son one marries Tamar, son one dies. Son two marries Tamar, son two dies. Son three is not going to marry Tamar. Only Tamar was never the problem, according to this text. It was his wicked sons who were the problem. And given that he is their father, the one who has trained them, the one who has raised them and taught them right from wrong, the real problem in this story is Judah himself. It's like someone saying, oh, I'm selling my car. Well, why are you selling your car? A oh, stupid thing. Every time I drive it, I get a speeding ticket. I don't know what's wrong with it. Maybe. Tamar is not the problem in this story. Judah and his wicked sons are. And again, you read these stories and you think, how on earth can the solution to sin come from this family? They know an awful lot about sin, but from the wrong side. They're, they're just full of, they're an absolute disgrace and a mess. This can never be God's solution here. Well, secondly, um, as bad as the behavior may be in the first 11 verses, it is absolutely nothing compared with what happens now. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. So a long time's passed, and it's now pretty obvious to Tamar that Judah has no intention of fulfilling his promise and doing his duty. So she hatches a plan. Judah's gone to the sheep shearing, which is basically like freshers week at university. And she knows if Judah's gone to the sheep shearing, Judah's going to be looking for a good time. So, verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Note that she was still in her mourning clothes at the start of these verses. It's taken her longer to get over her loser of her husband than it took Judah to get over the loss of his wife. If you... um. If you look up these verses in any of the commentaries, you'll see that a number of commentators try to sanitize the verses. They say that um, she's actually changed into bridal wear with the veil um, to shame Judah, to say, look, I'm dressed for, for marriage. Give me your son Shillah. I just don't think that's what's going on. Now, Judah may be an idiot, but he can tell the difference in dress between a bride and a hooker. You know, he, there is a, a big difference in the dress code between the two, and he knows what he sees on the road in front of him. Alas, however, Judah has left his wallet at home. So he has to engage in a bit of bartering if Judah is to do what Judah always does and have what he wants and have it right now. 
So the second half of verse 16. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Or will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enayim? Hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, oh, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her the young goat, but you didn't find her. Now, the, the seal was basically a small tube with a unique design on that would be rolled over a piece of soft clay, and it was effectively your signature. So basically what he said is, here's my credit card until I can give you the cash. That's what's going on. Irony of ironies is taking place. Just as he deceived his father with a goat and some poats and some personal earlier, now he is deceived, and involved in the deception is a goat and some personal possessions. And just as he asked his father in 37.32 to examine the personal possessions to see if Jacob recognized them, so shortly he will be asked to examine the cord and the staff and see if he recognizes them in verse 25. Again, the narrator is telling us subtly the patterns of sin. They just keep spreading out. You've got to say, Judah at this point looks pretty unredeemable. I mean, this is the famous Judah from whose family line Jesus comes. So what on earth's going on? You know, he's a failure as a son of Jacob, deceiving his father, selling his brother. He's a failure as the son of the covenant promise, abandoning his role in history. He's a failure as a father to his three boys. He's a failure as a father-in-law to his daughter-in-law Tamar. He's a failure as a man. He's just ruled by his appetites. How is God going to make a a loser like this useful in his purposes? You just think, seriously, find somebody else. Of all the people in the world, there's got to be somebody better than him you can use. Well, we may not be able to see how on earth Judah can be redeemed, but we are not God. It's been pretty muggy at night of late, but if you remember back to winter, they say that uh, winter nights are coldest and darkest in the hour just before dawn. And the truth is that this night, in this passage, will get darker before the light starts to shine. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. What a hypocrite Judah is, snorting with indignant rage. Someone in my family involved in prostitution? Do you not remember what you were doing three months earlier? You can imagine the scene. Word spreads like wildfire that there's going to be an execution, a lynching is happening. So people are coming from all the surrounding villages as the as the kindling and the and the logs are stacked round the stake, and they wait for the woman to be dragged out, kicking and screaming, and tied to the to the stake, and then burned to death in a hideous ceremony. 
And there is Judah with the town elders, face all serious as befits a man who is so ashamed that his family name should be dragged through the mud by this wicked whore who's supposed to be his daughter-in-law. But then as she's dragged out of the house, one of her maidservants runs over to Judah with a strange request and a rather familiar-looking little bundle of items. Do you recognize who these belong to? The person who these belong to is, is the one responsible for her shame and her pregnancy. Now, this is a moment of acute crisis for Judah. What does he do? Remember, Judah comes from a family of noted liars. His father's name means the twister. He was a brilliant deceiver as a young man. He got the entire inheritance of his family by deceiving his father and his older brother. Judah himself has deceived his father about what's happened with Joseph. He's brilliant at it. So I don't recognize them at all. Have her gagged. I don't want to hear any of her filthy slander. Take her away. Oh, I was wondering what had happened to those. They were stolen some time ago. Carry on with the execution. No, Judah's redemption starts here. As he is humiliated publicly. As he's revealed to have slept with his own daughter-in-law. And his only defense is, I thought she was a prostitute. A crime for which he was willing to condemn her to death. And he finally says something noble for the very first time in the entire story in verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. He says the right thing and he starts to do the right thing. It's very easy to finish there, really, and skip the final verses about um, the birth of the two kids. Because after all this lurid tabloid sensations, it feels like a bit of a dull anticlimax. But if the truth be told, they are the most shocking verses in the entire account, if we understand what's really going on there. Have a look. Verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of the boys put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah, which means scarlet. So Tamar gives birth to twins, and the younger one takes the place of the older one. Does that remind you of anything? It's the pattern we saw with Jacob and his older brother Esau being repeated. It's a hint that the promise that God's covenant to save the world will not run through the oldest child, Reuben, or even Simeon or Levi, the next two. It won't even run through Joseph, the one who will preserve the promise, the the great hero, if you like, in these chapters. Instead... God's promised serpent crusher will be born to a descendant of Judah. And when we get to chapter 49 at the end of Genesis, Jacob's last words as he blesses his 12 sons, he says this of Judah in Genesis 49.10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Judah will be the ruler. And the serpent crusher will come from the line of Judah and will be the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. 
Sin ruins, but God is able to redeem even Judah. And that grace, that saving grace, becomes amazing grace when you turn to Matthew 1. Flick up page 965 in your, in your Bibles. Page 965. Do you see uh, verse 16 on page 965? Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the, the Messiah, the Christ. So this chapter is the family tree of Jesus Christ, the earthly family of the man from heaven. What sort of back to verse will God pick when he takes on flesh and becomes a human being? Look back to verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Jesus' family tree includes a baby who was born because a lustful hypocrite mistook his daughter-in-law for a prostitute. Is that not extraordinary? You would not make that up. And Tamar's place is not brushed over, you know, an embarrassing part of Christian history that we try to ignore. She's one of only three women mentioned in the entire genealogy. She is raised up and exalted. And the human hero of the story is Tamar. In a patriarchal age, a male age, a woman is the hero. What's more, she's a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman. A pagan woman acts more righteously than a son of Jacob in this chapter. A pagan woman cares more about preserving children for the serpent crusher's line, preserving the promises of God than the children of God themselves care about. A pagan woman is the one who commits herself to the family of Jacob when his own sons <laughs> won't even do it. And there she is in Matthew 1, listed in the line of Jesus. God does what is surprising. That is why we say his grace is amazing. He uses the most unlikely of outsiders to fulfill his purposes. And I guess this chapter asks us, do you ever uh, despair of being useful to God? Now, some of us, if we're honest, although not many people here will know, we've committed the sort of big, arc, big dark, ugly sins, like Judah-type sins. The sort of sins that bring shame and regret years down the line. We still wake up with regret because of things we did maybe years ago. We know theologically God forgives, but the truth is we've not ever felt forgiven because of, well... If you knew what I'd done, if you'd seen what it did to other people. We can't imagine that God can really use us. Maybe forgive us, maybe we can be Christians, but surely you can't use people like me. Others of us uh, may not have the spectacular message, but we're just aware that our, our lives are just full of this low-level, ongoing compromise. It feels like uh, there's just a slight muck of sin about every intention, every action, every desire. We just, we just don't feel like there's anything special enough about us that God could use us. We feel like our sin has tainted everything, if we're honest. But look at Judah. If God can forgive Judah, if God can use a Judah in the central act of his salvation in history, then what makes you so sure this God cannot forgive you, that he cannot use you? You are not disqualified from serving God by your past. For others of us here, I guess it might be different. Uh, perhaps our struggle is more that of Tamar. It's not the stuff we've done. 
But far more tragically, I know for some of us, it'll be that there have been things done to us that make us feel tainted. The circumstances of our life, of our family, the things that have happened to us, just make us really God. There's just no way God can be involved in and a pure, holy God could could use me, given everything that's happened to me, given everything that I've been born into. Well, God doesn't see it that way. God does more than get involved in Tamar's life. God welcomes Tamar into his family. God sends his son to be born to Tamar's descendants. And even though it's a family tree stained with murderous blood and shamed with adultery and prostitution, God is willing to be born into that family. And if you'll be involved in that family, what on earth makes you think God won't be involved in your family? If God will send his son to be born to Tamar's line, what makes you think God will not welcome you into his family through Jesus Christ? None of us are too far off. None of us are too messed up. None of us have got a past that disqualifies us. I remember um, a few years ago, I went on one of those short-term mission things to, to Latin America. And one of the things we, uh, we helped to do was to build a compound for this, um, this guy called Daniel. And it had 12-foot-high walls, and it was an acre-sized compound. I think, um, no, it's all right. It, wasn't <laughs> it sounds like it was um, some luxury pad for a prosperity gospel preacher, but it wasn't at all. It was essential for his ministry. See, Daniel had a slightly different past to anybody here, I'll bet. Uh, Daniel had been in Argentina in the reign of terror. He'd been a policeman in the 1970s, and his job was to track down political miscreants, torture them to find their contacts, people who believed in awful things like democracy, and then the Spanish verb for what he had to do then was to disappear them. But Daniel started taking his job home, if you like, and he ended up being doing all sorts of things, and eventually they threw him into a hideous prison in Buenos Aires, and he was left there to rot. But there was a Satanist in the prison with him who couldn't read. But the Satanist had a Bible and said, there's stuff about Satan in the Bible, read this Bible to me. They got as far as Deuteronomy, of all books, and the Holy Spirit changed Daniel completely. And he turned to accept Jesus Christ. And he was so transformed that after a number of years, he was released um, by the government. And not only that... Not only that, although sin had totally ruined his life and caused him to ruin the lives of countless others, God somehow redeemed even his sin. And he now has permission from the government of Argentina to take 20 prisoners a fortnight out of any of the prisons around Argentina and take them to his compound and help them. Um, all kind of shaves them to get rid of the lice, gives them something useful to do for the week. I mean, sometimes I think he took the whole kind of redeeming their past mistakes a bit far. So the, just before we'd been there, uh, he gets them to do everything. And there was one guy who just wasn't interested to do anything while they were there. He didn't want to help work um, with the vegetable garden, didn't want to cook food, didn't want to do DIY. So he said, what are you in prison for? He said, I killed my family with an axe. He said, well, you can chop wood. Okay. <laughs> He's just saying, seriously, there, there is a line, Daniel. Um, but extraordinarily, extraordinarily, even a man with a past like Daniel was redeemed and used by God. And the non-Christian justice minister of Argentina said, I don't believe his gospel, but it works. It's extraordinary to see. Sin ruined, 
but God redeemed. There is a nagging question, though, before we close. How can God just let Judah off? His behavior is properly wicked. And what sort of God just brushes that under the carpet? How can God forgive you and me when we come into his presence with our filthy, stinking attitudes and desires and actions? How? Well, because of Judah's descendant. Because the baby born at the start of Matthew's gospel becomes the man who dies at the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus Christ, born to Tamar's descendants, hangs on a cross. And on the cross he paid. He paid for the sins of Judah. He paid for the sins of Jacob. He paid for the sins of everyone who would ever trust in his promised life. And he pays for the sins of you and of me. And because the Lord Jesus Christ has died on a cross and paid for sins, it means that anyone who's committed any sin need only turn and ask him for forgiveness. And we will find it freely offered to us. It is a wonderful chapter. Sin is revealed in all its ugliness. We see the depravity of what humans are capable of. And yet we see as deep as we may go, as far as we can go, God goes further. God's redeeming grace chases further. God's ability to clean up is far greater than our ability to smear and to ruin. God's ability to bring life is far greater than our ability to bring death. As deep and dark as sin is, this chapter tells us grace is deeper and richer and brighter. I wonder whether Judah would not have recognized the simple summary of faith that we were reminded of on Wednesday night of a man with a, another man with a hideous past. The man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, who was a slave trader and a wicked man as a young man. And later in his life, the phrase that he kept repeating again and again is, there are two things I know. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great saviour. Now, this passage doesn't tell us to do anything as such. It encourages us. If we know ourselves to be inexcusable sinners like Judah or far off from God like Tamar, if we recognize that we ought to despair of ever being right with God and usable by God, then be encouraged because as ugly and ruinous as sin may be, God's power to redeem is far greater Sin ruins, God redeems. We're just going to have a a minute to to think and to pray, and then I'll uh, close us in prayer. Why not just look back over the chapter and think through what God has been saying to us.
Our Father God, we thank you and praise you so much that the Lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. We thank you that uh, this this chapter reveals so beautifully your grace, your ability to redeem any and every sin. Our Father, we pray that we would not despair but would turn to Christ. And I thank you that we find at the cross forgiveness and cleansing for any stain. And I thank you that we find in you a God who is willing to use even wicked sinners to bring about his glorious purposes. Amen.